0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Anthology of Horror. I'm your host, spring Jack. Today I'm going to be covering something that is... I don't want to say it's local legend because it's confirmed that it happened and there's a ton of information on it, but it was uh, passed around for a while with little to no facts regarding the entirety of the situation uh, at truck stops or rest stops in the in the desert, in the California desert, so that it kind of became one of those stories, like, is it true, is it fake, is this made up, is there even the site that it happened in, does it even exist, so on and so forth. And to sum up briefly, what I am talking about, uh, which I would be very surprised if you've heard of them, because they did not get much publicity, and I will tell you the reason for that in a little bit, but I'm referring to the Apple Valley Bunker Murders. Yes, that's right, Apple as in the thing you eat, valley, as in a valley, Uh, and murders, as in uh, what fucking the children of police officers do, apparently. So, uh, we have, the fucking Honest LAPD has struck again. I shouldn't say that, the children of the Honest LAPD have struck again. For more than 20 years, the bunker stood by itself in a remote stretch of the desert, And it was a crumbling relic from another era, with graffiti-scarred walls, hidden alcoves, and a warren of dark hallways that, allegedly, led to nowhere. Gaping holes punctured the concrete roof, creating 30-foot drops to the floor below. It's one of those places where there were thousands of bullet casings under your feet at any point. There was shattered glass, and enough of it that it formed a jagged carpet all over the floor. As do most abandoned Superfund sites. Over time, the abandoned Air Force installation has become the haunt of bored teenagers, gun lovers, and the occasional nomadic outlaw. And sometimes, worlds collide. You have a congregating spot, eventually they're going to cross paths. So, that may have been what happened in the early morning hours of January 5th, when 30 or 40 teenagers from the small community between Barstow and Victorville held a birthday party inside of the bunker. By dawn, two teenagers lay dead inside. Both were shot in the head at close range and there were five shots in total fired. The crime scene was harrowing, so much so that it rattled even hardened homicide detectives, which out in this area, they're, they're pretty fucking tough. According to the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, the victims, uh, 16-year-old Bodie Scherzer Potter and her boyfriend, Chris Cody Thompson, uh, she was 16, he was 18, they stayed behind after the party broke up uh, with the intention of camping in the Jeep under the stars, I guess, to, uh... They were going to car camp in their Jeep and look at the stars because they were dating. And they thought it would be sweet. They both... Had great reputations at the top flight charter school where they met. Uh, they met each other there for the first time, and among those that knew them, uh, th- they were uh, they were dr- ambitious kids. Like uh, fucking Bodie was an aspiring filmmaker, and she routinely studied until eleven p.m. and her mother barely let her out at night. And kind of kept her on the right path, though she didn't really need that much help, is my understanding from what I've read. She seemed like a good kid. Uh, Thompson was a guitar-playing, introverted guy, but listened a lot more than he talked, and he treated his girlfriend really well. And he was a, gave sound advice when he was called upon. Uh, the sheriff's spokesman, Sergeant Rick L., said, It's really an extraordinary case. I worked homicide for years, and if you take away gangs and drugs, you eliminate about 80% of the cases. These two kids were squared away. There there was no gang, there were no drugs, no reason for it. Authorities have ruled out murder-suicide and have been interviewing everyone who was at the party. They also seized computers from the victims' homes. Detective Rob Alexander, sifting through dirt in the dark hallway where the bodies were found, said the case was the department's top priority because it was heinous. We've put everything aside to work on this, he said, and emotions are running high. Many local adults learned of the bunker only after the slayings and were shocked that it had been allowed by the United States Air Force, the ever-reliable United States Air Force, to sit open for so long. I couldn't believe the federal government would leave a place like that without a fence or anything, said 84-year-old Robert Powell, a retired engineer who visited the site for the first time after the murders, and has since begun a petition to get it demolished. When I saw the hole in the top, it unnerved me. The sheriff and the police are well aware that this place exists, and they should be in the forefront of closing it. Some teenagers said they had encountered armed skinheads at the bunker. As with most abandoned sites, somebody claims to have encountered militant skinheads there. It's always the story. I was out there a year ago, and there were some guys who came up on us, said 16 year old, who later identified himself only as Matt. They had shaved heads, and I knew they were Nazi lowriders. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Nazi lowriders are like an Aryan Brotherhood proxy group, I guess? Uh, oh, the Nazi lowriders are a white supremacist gang active in the high desert. Swastikas can be seen scrawled on the bunker. So can R.I.P. Bodhi. You can see that spray painted on the wall, and also a white outline of a body, and a very tasteful dead body here with an arrow pointing the way to where the bodies were found. It wasn't done by the murderers. This was done a while after. Authorities say that they know gang members have frequented this site, but they have received no complaints of trouble in at least 18 months. It's a big-ass desert, and there are lots of places where kids can go to get away. If you were close to this one, another place would open up, and I don't think you can foresee this kind of thing ever happening, so... No, it wasn't a top priority to shut it down, it wasn't a top priority to seal it off, because the desert is filled with these fucking things. The two-story bunker, which sits about a mile south of California I-58, is all that remains of the former Haas Auxiliary Field, which was built during World War II. Uh, The complex once included a 1,200-foot-tall radio tower used by Strategic Air Command, and the bunker housed generators and wiring for that tower, which ceased operations in the mid-1980s when we started demilitarizing at the end of the, cl- the Cold War. Residents of the unincorporated community of Silver Lakes, not Silver Lake, Silver Lakes, where most of the partygoers lived say that they are devastated by the slayings. Uh, the crime was horrific, and that's what Braxton Boyd, who was 17, and a friend and classmate of both victims said, You don't meet many people like Cody, people who you don't have to worry about stabbing you in the back, I never went to the bunker, but Bodie was into weird and spooky stuff. It's victim-blaming, I think. Thompson and Potter attended Lewis Center for Educational Research, which was a charter school in Apple Valley with a 1,000 students and a waiting list of an impressive 3,000. It was a great school. Potter, who was a sophomore, was known for her sunny disposition and her avant-garde movies that she made in school, much like Kurt Cobain. She and Thompson met in a film class taught by one Steve Orsonelli. Cody mentioned a year ago that he went out to the bunker and I freaked out. I wouldn't go out there, Orsinelli said. He said it was no big deal and that it was abandoned. And that's no shocker in this desert. We have abandoned mines, bombing ranges, old military bases all over the fucking place, but I never saw a bunker like this. You know, come to think of it, I spent a lot of time in the desert too. I have never seen a bunker. Uh, Rick Piercy, who is president and chief executive of the school, said that the slayings had caused some soul searching amongst the staff. We've all thought. How could we have done something different to protect these kids? Why didn't we know about this fucking place? The bunker needs to be taken down. It's become a symbol of the evil in this world now. Pamela Thompson, who was Cody's mother, said she knew of the bunker, but didn't know her son went there. Oh, so mom went there to suck some dicks, but didn't know that her kid frequented it. It's a bad, terrible place. If I have to stamp it down to the ground myself, I will. I don't want this to happen to some other kid out there. Yeah, well, it's gonna happen wherever. If that place is closed, it's just going to be another spot, like the sheriff said. Leah Scherzer, who is Bodie's mother, said her daughter had taken her to the site once before, promising that it would be cool. I was appalled, I said. It's not cool. It's frightening. It's dangerous. Scherzer said, I told her, honey, you're not allowed here anymore. I could tell she was torn. She looked hurt. Scherzer was a single mother and a school psychologist. She kept her daughter close and only recently let her walk to the grocery store alone. I've been holding my daughter hostage from the world, she said. She was gifted, but way too naive. Bodhi often studied up up to four hours a night and had a tutor in math, her mother said. She was named after the Buddhist beings who guide humans to enlightenment. Her 23-year-old brother is named Zen. Oh my god, he must hate her. Mother and daughter would bake bread on Sundays and give it to the neighbors, and in her spare time, Potter wrote poetry, and some of it was dark, but she was a teenage girl, so what do you expect? Teenagers write pretty dark fucking shit. Something is eating away at my creativity. Every time I try to get these thoughts and images out of my head, they come out twisted and mangled, and not what I wanted them to be, she wrote once. At first, her mother was not happy she was dating the 2 year older Thompson. Uh, She's quoted the saying, When I met Cody, he looked a little rough for my daughter. I told him, I don't like you. You're too old for my daughter. She said, sitting at her kitchen table. But he was always respectful, and eventually, he won me over. It wasn't easy to date my daughter. This mom sounds like a fucking asshole. Very protective, which is cool, but fucking jerk, man. You just say whatever you want to people. <laughs> I will, though, as a parent, come to think of it. You're going out with my daughter? I'll fucking murder you if you touch her, man. Just stare at him like there's something wrong with you. I've always looked forward to doing that, but the way the world's going now, if I can look at him too hard, it's going to be conspiracy to commit murder charges. Anyway, the night of the shootings, Scherzer Potter had gone to stay with relatives in Orange County, and that is Bodie. Her last name is a very upsetting, unpronounceable, hyphenated combo of something German and then Potter. So she's Bodie, Potter, Scherzer Potter. The one with the weird fucking name is the girl. At some point, she slipped out and was picked up by a friend who drove her to the bunker. In the morning, they called me and said she was not in her room, her mom says, and then Cody's mom calls me and says that they're looking for Cody, and I realized that we had a real fucking problem. And then somebody called, I still don't know who, and said Cody was dead. Shortly after, she received the same news about her daughter. She thought the bunker was safe all these years, Scherzer said. It represented a freedom from the constraints of society. I want that fucking military bunker torn down by the people that built it. But right now, I have a daughter to bury, so I don't, ha- I don't got time to be an activist, she was quoted as saying. No one is eager to claim responsibility for the bunker, and as the Air Force is famous for, they are passing the buck. Because, uh, you know, the Air Force bunker has nothing to do with them. The Federal Bureau of Land Management technically oversees the site, but says the Air Force would be responsible since they were the ones that built it. As for putting up a warning sign, the way the desert is, if there is a sign up... Uh, for 24 hours, it's going to have bullet holes completely through it, all over the place, or it's going to be torn down and stolen. So there's really no point in putting up fucking signs in the desert. These kids are going to party anywhere and everywhere. and I've seen it for 20 years. It's the fucking desert. There's nothing to do. Uh, the Air Force released a statement the week of the killings that it's expected to demolish the bunker by the end of the year and that Edwards Air Force Base was interested in acquiring the land. There is no activity at the site, said Linda Gissinger, an Air Force spokeswoman. We don't need it. We don't use it. We don't want it. The wheels were in motion to make this happen before the slangs, and now we're very intent to get it done. (sighs) Fuck you guys. Since the slangs, more and more residents have driven the jarring dirt roads to get to this fucking place. That week, Powell walked along the top of the bunker, stopping to stare into the numerous deep, misleading cavernous holes that led straight to a concrete floor below. Powell knew um, Bodie's mom and knew Bodie very well and being only yards from where the girl died made him extremely uncomfortable. But nothing could quail his outrage that despite the obvious hazards, the bunker had been allowed to stand open for decades. You could fill it with sand, you could put in concrete plugs, you could bulldoze it, in probably an hour you could bulldoze the whole thing. He studied the supports and thought for a moment, if you left me alone with a case of C4 plastic explosives, he said, I could probably get rid of it. If you you managed to fuck it up with C4, you're a fucking moron. It's a... It's a... Oh, goddammit. Was he in the Air Force? I'm sorry. There's a good reason for my, my Air Force rivalry. I just won't share it with you guys. <sighs> so, that was the, the uh, article that was written as soon as the story dropped. And it was a mystery for a while. That was the only... That evidence and that story was what I heard. And I was under the impression that it was never solved. So I was also kind of making the assumption that it was fucking fake. Because it's... is a scary story. I really want to believe that that sort of thing doesn't happen to children when they're out just having a good time at a birthday party and not doing drugs. But it does, unfortunately. And, um... It's fucking awful. And I heard it at a truck stop when I was traveling through the desert, and I I took it for what it was worth. I mean, the guy was a pretty straight shooter, but... It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a lot to process if you really think about it. It's fucking two teenagers. Think about you when you were 16 and imagine getting shot in the back of the head leaving a party. Execution style for seemingly no reason. Or your kid. It's fucking awful. Ugh, God. Two popular teens were slain a year ago now in an abandoned military bunker and they were selected for murder. Because they were the last ones left at the party. That was the working theory that they had for a while. (sighs) So within the weeks of the murders, which became known as the Bunker Murders, detectives were able to arrest a guy named Colin McLaughlin, who looks like a a really fucking inbred version of Chum Lee from Pawn Stars. And he lived in West Covina, which is quite a hike from where these kids were killed. Another guy named David Brian Smith, who now makes me happy to see is completely horseshoe bald. and He can suck it. They were both charged with murder, kidnap, and robbery. A third suspect, a 16-year-old named Cameron Thomas, was arrested later that March. And uh, they all could face life in prison, potentially the death penalty. At least that's what they are told by the DA. Detective Robert Alexander testified that the three defendants asked a friend, Sean Gonzalez of Victorville, to take them on a camping and shooting trip in the desert. Colin McLaughlin's father, Wayne McLaughlin, lent them two guns for the trip. He was a fucking police officer. LAPD, as I was saying, the ever-honest LAPD. Gonzalez told detectives he turned down the trio because he hated Colin McLaughlin. He said he was a scary psycho, and when they previously shot guns with him, he made him extremely uncomfortable because he was unsafe. McLaughlin is dumb-looking chum Lee. Defendant Smith also confided to Gonzalez that the three found other teenagers partying when they arrived to camp at the bunker, It was at least according to the sheriff's de- detective. After mingling at the party, McLaughlin told the other two that he wanted to ra- rob the last car and uh, maybe some other stuff. Didn't really specify, though. A friend of the victim's told police that they had planned to spend the night outside the bunker in their Jeep as well, and uh, for whatever reason, their plans ended up falling through. So Thompson told the detectives that he acted, this is the kid, the 16 year old shooter, he told the kids he acted as a lookout while Colin and Smith took the victims once everyone else had left and led them back inside the bunker. Smith told investigators that he never pointed a gun at them and that McLaughlin was the one who shot them, according to Alexander. Deputy Public Defender Stephen Woolms, who was representing McLaughlin, highlighted disparities between Smith's statement to the police and the official coroner's report. Thompson was kneeling down when he was shot, and according to Smith, while the county coroner said that Thompson's wounds were consistent with him being shot in a laid-out position. Also, Smith's testimony conflicted with the coroner's findings, in his descriptions of the order of the shots that killed Bodie. Wayne McLaughlin told the police that his son took medication for psychological problems and that without them, he could be frightening and scary. And also, when you take those medications that make you not frightening and scary, you are not allowed to touch a firearm. And that is a massive deal. So his dad, the cop, should have known that. The preliminary hearing was scheduled to continue a week after that. So that was uh, the build-up to the trial. I'm kind of... There's not a whole lot of information on this, so you got to forgive the... Sp- Got to, got to forgive the rather scattered uh, note taking that I did on this because it's. There's a lot of speculation sites. There's a lot of bullshit on the internet, and uh, then there's the occasional collection of information that seems to be pretty fucking accurate compared to the other stuff that I took as credible. <sighs> Man, so. They couldn't figure out what the deal was with this fucking case. Uh, they didn't know why it had happened. That was More importantly... Most importantly, they didn't know why they were singled out, why they were targeted. Could it have been like they were dealing and not using drugs? They were really banking on them being involved in the criminal element at some level. But... Nope. So let's talk about the guys that killed them. There were three of them that were arrested. Uh... Colin Lee McLaughlin, David Bryan Smith were the two main perps, and they were arrested, and they were suspected just because they were suspects in lingering around. They were suspects because they were lingering around at the remote High Desert Hangout. Uh, and it was they were overheard saying that they wanted to rob the final revelers from the party. And instead, though, instead of robbing them, the victims were killed, executed in a gangland-style fashion, which is put on their knees and, and shot in the back of the head three or four times each. I think it was five shots in total. The body of Christopher Thompson, 18, and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Bodie, uh, were found the next afternoon inside of the graffiti-ridden bunker off of Highway 58. Both had been shot in the head at close range just before dawn on January the 5th, and nothing was taken. It appears the suspects took the two victims into the bunker and executed them, said the county sheriff. And then... They left the area. McLaughlin, who is 18, is from West Covino, West Covina, and Smith, 19, from Covina. They were both booked into jail uh, on suspicion of murder, and they were being held without bail. After two weeks of intense work, detectives, detectives finally picked up the suspects in their home more than 100 miles away from the bunker. They did crack police work on this case, honestly, I love talking shit about cops fucking it up, but these guys did not. They fucking nailed it. They took every lead seriously, and they investigated everything, and the result was they found these fucking idiots 100 miles away, loudmouth teenage fuckboys just running their mouths. Unbelievable. I mean, they got an anonymous tip, but still, an anonymous tip about some guy that... (laughs) People claim all sorts of shit. So, like... You got a phone call as an, as an investigator for every bullshit thing that somebody told you in a bar that they had accomplished. Just imagine like some guy in a bar, drunk as shit, full of shit, just rambling about like, oh, hey, yeah, man, I used to be a fucking bodyguard for James Hatfield from Metallica, man. I fucking, I had to shoot somebody once though, man. I didn't, I didn't like it. I liked it though, but that was before I was a Mongol, you know, then I joined the Hell's Angels cause the Mongols weren't for me. And you're just like, mother of God, fucking shoot me. And you're just begging the bartender to throw him out, but he doesn't because it's hilarious to watch you squirm. Imagine investigating every aspect of that crazy fucker's story, then multiply it by an entire county. And everyone either wants the attention from the murders, or they want to be involved with the solving the case somehow. So people are trying sometimes to do well and do the right thing, but... Realistically, pandemonium, and the Sheriff's Department, I cannot say enough positive things about them because they fucking s- killed it, killed it, in a good way. <sighs> McLaughlin is believed to be the shooter, and Sheriff Sergeant Rick Ells, uh, was confer- he confirmed that in a early press release, and then further ballistic testing had to be done on the weapons recovered by detectives during searches of both suspects' residences, just to make sure. Uh, detectives also do not believe that the two had ever met the victims. Thompson and Potter were simply the last two at the party as it broke up at four. And that's what was unusual about this case from the start. It was senseless. Thompson and Potter, like I was saying, they had been going... They were high school sweethearts. They are both artistic. And it was really speculated. they, Like I said, they were trying to go for the drug angle, and they were really trying to go for the uh, interpersonal relationship too, but... It was hard not knowing whether it was a personal attack or just something fucking way worse. Uh, but it was also, it was, the common consensus is that it wasn't, because they were pretty good kids. And the mom of Bodie said, to this day, I've never met a person that knew her daughter and didn't like her being Bodie. So, as word of the arrest spread, and that is of McLaughlin and Smith, attention quickly focused to McLaughlin's profile on social media, as it does... Usually when there's a spree killer, everyone tries to get onto his fucking Facebook and read his quotes and like, oh man, he read Mein camp once. Or whatever. Which, uh, this guy was a pretty avid MySpace user. Which, if uh remember MySpace, fucking sucked. Who the fuck is Tom? Anyway, uh, under the headline, Equal Opportunity, Merchant of Death, a, photog- or a photograph shows fat-ass inbred Chum Lee pointing a hefty silver handgun directly at the camera. And another one, uh, it showed him holding a large, looked like a tactical stock shotgun. Uh, the The newspaper article had it listed as a black assault weapon, but I think it was probably a Mossberg 500 with a collapsible stock and a pistol grip. It was, it was a cop gun, for sure, but it wasn't anything dramatic that you couldn't get at a Big Five. Uh, sheriff's officials confirmed that the profile in which he says He's the student at Mount San Antonio College and Walnut is his. If you don't read this, I will sneak into your house late and kill you, he titled a rambling blog entry from September in which he brags of LSD use and describes a desire to walk down the street and randomly shoot people with three fifty-seven if he felt so inclined. Douche. Friends of Thomas and Potter, who have showered the victim's profiles with hundreds of tributes, respond to McLaughlin's words with anger and fury. Some punctuated their comments with profanity while wishing the worst upon him, including the death penalty. That would not be the worst. One pointed, or one posted McLaughlin's booking number at West Valley Detention Center in Rancho Cucamonga. Fuck, that's funny. Others were simply dumbfounded, saying, God help us. It was a mixed reaction on the online community, surprisingly. Uh, No one answered the phone Friday at uh, the, the number that was provided for McLaughlin's home in West Covina, and a neighbor reached out Uh, when they got in touch with him by phone, declined to comment. Uh, Pretty much everyone they called in that area was a no-comment hang-up type of deal. Because remember, his daddy was a cop. (sighs) So overshadowed by the arrest was word that Friday, and this is all the same time frame. I'm sorry about the uh, jumbled past and present and future tenses with all this shit, but there is no information on it. So it's all hodgepodge together. I apologize. Uh, Overshadowed by the arrests was word that the Air Force hoped to have the bunker demolished by fall and the land returned to its natural state for use by its owner, the Federal Bureau of Land Management. This is something that we want to get done, said Philip Mook, senior representative for Air Force Real Property Agency's Western Region Office in Sacramento. Man, they have way too much, way too many things going on. Mook said that the Air Force began talks with the Bureau in 2001 to demolish the remnants of the 1,200-foot radio communications tower deserted in 86. The Air Force has received some of the $500,000 required for the demolition process for some reason, and is working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to ensure that the protected tortoise in the area is not disturbed. (sighs) Since being abandoned, the bunker, as local teens know it, was a gathering spot for all sorts of fucking assholes. It kind of seemed like one of those things where it was uh, common knowledge that it existed and it was one of those kids are going to go there, kids will be kids type of thing. Um, Bodhi's brother, Zen, accompanied his younger sister to the bunker two years before her untimely murder there. And he said the spot was a curiosity, not unlike the private beaches and abandoned farmhouses that serve as meeting points for teens in other parts of America. And he's not wrong. Uh, it's this monolith, this 50s bunker, he said, and any time there's a hole in the ground, these fucking kids are gonna explore it. Especially desert rats, they love holes in the ground, because it's... just means you're, like I've said before, you're teetering on the edge of sanity when you start exploring holes in the ground, especially when white people do it. Um, not to be blatantly racist, but that's usually the sign of, like, off the meds. When there's people underneath your house, or you're tunneling to escape from... Whatever. When white people start digging, you're fucked. So the night of the bunker party, Zen was the last family member to see his sister alive. She had been staying with him in Costa Mesa when her friend picked her up. Uh, he thought she was getting a ride home to Helendale, but she lied to him. Instead, she met her boyfriend and went to the party. Potter, her brother, said that he doesn't blame uh, the locals for what happened. Could have happened anywhere, and he was not quick to blame anybody other than the murderers, which was, surprisingly, forward-thinking of him. All right. So if you've read the court transcripts of the preliminary hearing, um, in this case that's commonly known as the Desert Bunker Murders, as I recently did, you'll be struck by one refrain that stood out, and that was how many people, it was a common theme, how many people feared Colin McLaughlin in the years, and especially days leading up to the events of January 5th, 2008, Let's talk about this fucking limperisted douchebag for a little bit. His is, uh, God, I fucking hate this guy just because he's a privileged son of a cop and he killed a fucking 16 year old girl at random and her 18 year old boyfriend, but got the jump on him with a gun. Fuck you, dude. I hate people like this. Like, come at me. Fucking pussy. His small private high school feared him, and uh, it was as far back as 2005. They had the police come and take him away from making terrorist threats. Which, admittedly, after 9-11, it really doesn't take much to be con- convicted of terrorist threats. Like just threatening violence. That's, it. That's all. The prosecutor in that case described him as a walking accident waiting to happen, and yet he was walking outside of jail. He uh, miraculously somehow had two friends, uh, name of David Smith and Cameron Thomas. They were terrified of him, though, allegedly. He was psychotic, they said. Crazy scary. Conveniently after they'd been arrested and they were testifying against him, though. His father, the LAPD officer, feared him. He locked up his guns, except for the two that he gave him, of course, because Colin's erratic behavior frightened him. And then, he took his son to the doctor for psychiatric meds. This kid made people nervous. It was a, a slingshot, just with bad intention, pointed at everybody, and ready, to, just looking for a reason to, to let, it, let it rip. Uh, this is a direct quote from... Limperest calling inbred fucking McLaughlin's MySpace blog. I feel that if a person really needs it, they should be able to walk down the street with a 357 killing people at random. He was short, fat as fuck, with a doughy, impassive face made blanker by his dead-eyed shark face eyed stare, and he was an 18-year-old who wore combat boots that he thought were military-issued and they were not, and whose life was shit and whose output was all fury. <sighs> And nobody did anything, because he was just too fucking annoying to deal with. It's as if he was a ticking time bomb that everybody decided was background noise and they could could live with it. (laughs) The court transcripts tell the story of fear, but also of just conceding, being passive, and kind of like gypsying away. From that which scared them, which was the responsibility to hold this douchebag accountable. McLaughlin was the director of a movie that nobody wanted to make, but they drifted listlessly into their roles all the same. The father who let his psychologically disturbed son borrow his guns to keep him happy. The sidekick who only mumbled, that's dumb, when he was presented with the violent plan. His ability to cause fear was the only ability that he had, and on a cold, rainy January night, years ago, he stumbled upon the perfect setting to make true on his violent potential, and that was the abandoned military bunker in the desert. A maze, covered with graffiti scrawled walls, littered with beer cans, spent shotgun shells, and where bored teenagers came to have sex with each other and party. Reading the transcripts only as a refresher... Ah, man. Because uh, I I remember reading them a while back when I found out that this case wasn't made up. I remember the moment Colin, previously blank, broke into a smile during the court case. The smile didn't happen when he saw his parents, but occurred instead when the autopsy photos were passed among the attorneys and a glimpse of the bloodied victim sent a shudder through the courtroom. I didn't fear him. But I was glad that he was in iron shackles and uniformed guards with guns were standing next to him. Yeah, okay. Okay. So the bunker, again, to go back to that, it's a part of Southern California, northeast of the San Gabriel Mountains, what's known as the High Desert. And that's includes, but is not limited to, Barstow, Palmdale, Victorville. And for most people, the area is the windy stretch of desert scrub brush on the way to Las Vegas. It's like all the towns that are kind of okay to take a dump in when you're driving to Vegas, but you'd rather not. (laughs) Edwards Air Force Base, where the ever reliable Air Force has many an operation going, is nearby. And uh, on unmarked roads without fences that are marked. And apparently you can be trespassing on an Air Force Base and not even fucking know it because go- <laughs> fucking cereal take you there because of the maps. I was der- Okay, I'll tell you why I fucking hate Edwards Air Force Base. It's been a long time coming. I was taking pictures in an abandoned military facility in Boron because I do the urbex photography. And Boron, if you cut through 20-meal team road, it saves about 80 miles coming from where I live, which is the Los Angeles area. So I took 20-meal Team Road, turned into Mercury, and it seemed like it circumvented Edwards Air Force Base on the south side of it. Went around, dumped off immediately in downtown Boron, and it saved me a fuckload of time. So I went out that way in the morning, came back, and as I was coming back, I heard a fucking really loud plane. And so I parked my car, pulled off to the side of the road, grabbed my camera, jumped out the car, and I saw that they were doing the SR-71 flyovers. It was the fucking stealth fighter Badass. I'd never seen anything like that. So I started taking pictures of it, because I had just recently learned how to shoot high-speed photography, because I've slowly teaching myself over the course of years. And, um, it's, these guys came out of nowhere. They were, because it was desert on every side. I didn't, the road ran through the middle. There were no gates, no checkpoints, no, no fucking lights, no warning signs. But on either side of the road, there was a fence, and on the fence had signs posted everywhere that said, no trespassing, Air Force installation. Okay. So I did not step off the road. I was on the road smoking a cigarette, taking pictures. And then these guys pull up through one of the open gates in a truck and they're like, "Hey, are you affiliated with the base in any way?" I was like, "No, man. What's what's up?" I went, "Should I go?" They're like, "No, you're fine. Just stay here." And I was like, "Okay." And I kind of had this weird feeling, so I jumped in my car after they left and I was like, "Yeah." Mm. I've got a gun in the back seat that's unloaded, of course, but I have—I was in backcountry, so I had just thrown it in the back seat when I was leaving in a hurry, and I know it's not the right way to do it. I know. I know. It was unloaded. I was in a hurry. And so that was in the back seat, so I tossed that into the trunk because I have a 4Runner, so I was able to toss it. It's like a crossover SUV. And um, I also had a... Camouflage backpack with a whole bunch of camera wires fucking hanging out of it and battery uh, auxiliary chargers, like the the solar-powered ones. So it essentially looked like a bomb in a backpack, and I have a huge beard, and I am, according to the government, Arab. I'm not. I'm Greek. But according to the government, that's Arab. So I am going through my camera, looking at the pictures, just kind of squaring everything away, putting the cameras away where I can, and I look up, and there's a truck. It's a military police truck parked in front of me. Uh-oh, I look behind me, there's another one, and there's one on either side of me, too. Somehow they flanked me, and I wasn't even paying attention. And, um, because well, I wasn't doing anything wrong, I wasn't looking for it, I didn't think. So, like, oh man, they, they didn't have lights on, so I was like, maybe I can just go. Like, those lights aren't on, they're just here, it seems like they're straight chilling. I'm just gonna go, so I turned my car on. <laughs> Oops. And uh, all the doors open, they're all behind the doors, fucking felony stop, fucking T-stop style with the guns drawn, screaming, put the windows down, put the windows down, who else is in the car, so on and so forth. And so began the violation of my asshole. Not literally. But they were very professional. Because, especially considering that they had the the right to shoot on site for trespassers, they did their job just fine. And they were very civil about it. Uh, I was not happy when they made me drive back to Boron and circumvent Edwards the proper way. That was a little upsetting to me because it added 90 miles, but I guess I earned it. I blame Apple, though, and one day I'll sue them for it, but Siri took me there, and um, I got dicked around for probably two hours sitting on the side of the road in Edwards Air Force Base while they ran my social security number and driver's license and asked me what country my family was from and then asked me if... I sympathized with the terrorist groups that were local to them, and what languages I spoke, and if I spoke Russian, if I was sure I wasn't Russian, and uh, a million questions under the book, and they threatened to take my cameras too, which was when I got mad. Um, not mad, because that would be irrational for me to get mad at them for doing their job, but um, I may have thrown my my Instagram fucking uh, Z-list celebrity dumb around a little bit, where it was like, A serious threat for a second, and I was like, look, man, you can do whatever you want. You have to do your job. I understand that. But I'm gonna fucking make your life miserable through social media if you do. These people will call the base on my behalf. Some of them will. Like, if if a hundred of them did, called the base every day trying to get my shit back. That's annoying as hell. Even if fifty did it. I don't expect fifty-six thousand people to do it. That's ridiculous, but a solid annoying group of people just calling every day, talking to the commander. He'd he'd never let them hear the end of it. And I kind of told them that, and they didn't believe that I was telling the truth about Instagram. But they had my phone. (laughs) So, I was like, look, dude, here's the password to my phone. Go onto my Instagram app and check for yourself. So I gave him the password to my phone, and he went to Instagram, and he looked, and he said, oh shit, he's being serious. (laughs) Yes, I'm being serious. And, um, He was a very nice guy. He was very professional. Handled it like a champ. Because I know what I look like. I looked like I was there to fucking bomb it. I was in a blacked out SUV. Full beard. Wearing Haji gear. Fucking sunglasses on. And a bag full of wires. I know what it looked like. So then he made an agreement with me saying that if you allow me to delete your entire memory card of the pictures you took, you can go. But you gotta go back to Boron. So that sounds like a pretty goddamn fair deal, man. And uh so he turns on my camera and starts going through my fucking memory card, and all the pictures from Boron fucking air station were there because I was there earlier in the day taking pictures of the abandoned military facility. He's like, Are you what is it with you? So like, what do you mean? You spying for somebody? No, dude. Just enjoy taking pictures of old military shit. It's cool. Hmm. Are you Russian? No, I'm not Russian. Are you sure? Your family from the Balkans? Like, no, dude. So, or make a long story short, they made they followed me out in Boron. They Car in front, car behind, escorted me out. And then, uh, they said if I was ever around there again in the wrong spot, I would be arrested and detained without a question. So, uh, never going back there. But I got on a fucking rampage about that, sorry, so, uh, Lights are spooky and remote. They offer kind of outlaw freedom. Place to smash beer bottles, light fires without consequence. Okay, so this is an interview with... Dipshit. Oh, I remember now. Edwards Air Force Base is nearby and off the highway. Deep into the desert, old military installations still stand. Neglected and decaying, but still standing. The military chose the area for its wide, empty expanse and sparse population. Qualities that aren't ideal for teenagers searching for a place to fuck. Over the years, high desert teens began gathering at the abandoned mine shafts and bunkers out in the desert because it's just a meetup spot. The sites are spooky and remote, but they offer a kind of outlaw freedom and a place to, like I said, smash beer bottles and light fires and shoot your guns and have sex with each other without anyone giving a fucking shit. So, question, can you describe what the lighting was like when you went into the bunker at that time? It's completely underground, so it was completely dark, and once you walk inside, you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. It's damn dark. Uh, Detective Robert Alexander of the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department got the call at 4.17 p.m. There was a suspicious death, or deaths, out at the bunker, a former Air Force radio relay station. In the courtroom, Alexander described the route to the bunker, turning off Highway 58 onto a semi-paved road and then onto dirt, parking and walking nearly a quarter mile through the rock and sand until he came to the nearly 30-foot mound of earth and concrete. There was a gold jeep parked near the bunker. There was an aluminum lawn chair collapsed outside the driver's door. Below the back bumper, there was a pair of black gym shoes, and Alexander observed toe dig impressions on either side of the Jeep. Alexander and his team made their way into the bunker with flashlights. He described the narrow corridors, walls blackened with soot and covered with graffiti, the ground littered with glass, gravel, and dirt. Uh, They could smell smoke from the fires that had been lit inside. They could smell the gunpowder from the shots that had been fired the night before. And turning left into the main corridor, they came upon two bodies just lying on the ground. The dude was face up with his legs folded beneath him as if he'd been kneeling facing the shooter. He'd been shot in the back and through the right eye. Damn. The female was slumped forward with a blue sleeping bag wrapped around her. She'd been shot in the temple, in the ass, and in the back. There was a shoe track also on her back on top of where she'd been shot. And did David tell you what Colin did at that point? It's another interviewer question there. Splitting him, I guess. He said Colin kicked her and asked her if she was still alive. And that's where the footprint came from. The victim, Bodie Potter and Christopher Thompson, met when they were in high school in Apple Valley. Okay, we've been over this. They'd been dating for over a year. They'd come to the bunker to celebrate a friend's birthday and decided to remain there and spend the night in Cody's Jeep. They were last seen alive at 3 a.m. When they hadn't appeared the next afternoon, worried friends returned to the bunker and discovered their bodies inside. The victim's friends told investigators about a trio of unfamiliar young men who showed up in a Honda Odyssey van and asked if they could join the party. The strangers brought a bottle of Raspberry Bacardi that was passed around. They didn't make a strong impression. Maybe they were a little dicey, a little vacant, though someone recalled one guy, identified himself as Mac, and said while he was in school he'd been arrested for making threats to kill a N-word. He apparently is using racial slurs at full volume. (sighs) Not that you should use them at all, but... That stood out. He used the N-word pretty explicitly. So for two weeks, nothing moved on the case. Then a tip came in. guy in Victorville said that his friend David had stopped by his house with two friends the night of the murder. Said they were going camping and shooting in the desert and the tipster didn't want to join because the friend, Colin, was a psycho. As we were talking about earlier. So they left. And David called later and asked for directions to the bunker, which he remembered from a previous gathering. Around 4 a.m., the tipster's phone rang and it was David. Some bad shit went down, David told him. Don't tell anybody we were here. Nice. David Smith, 19, and his friends Colin McLaughlin and Cameron Thompson were from down the hill, which is the other side of the San Gabriel Mountains, from the town of Covina and the shithole of West Covina. Smith had been a high school track star, but he'd lost his athletic scholarship to UC Riverside after a conflict with the coach. He couldn't afford to pay for college anymore and was drifting and crashing at Cameron's house. Colin had been kicked out of several schools and had spent some time in a mental hospital. He was the topic of many a conversation among people in his life. Uh, What's he going to do, they wondered. It was all... (laughs) Cringe-worthy. Nervous anticipation and no preventative maintenance. Colin spoke frequently of his desire to kill somebody. Uh, Not to be taken seriously, though. In, In December, his father finally took him to a doctor for an evaluation and for medication to shut him the fuck up. Three weeks later, on January 4th, Colin asked his dad if he could borrow his shotgun and his Ruger Mini-14. And his father, being a reliable and honest LAPD officer, said, Fuck yeah. And his father said yes. Colin placed the guns in a tan duffel bag and threw the bag in the back of Cameron's mother's van and the three headed north to the desert. Detectives wired the tipster and arranged for him to meet with David and Cameron. The plan to go camping had been vague, they said. No one brought gear, and in some versions of the telling, Colin was hot to rob somebody, and in the other ones, he was just out to kill. So what's consistent is that Colin was just off kilter, and his presence fucked everybody up. The menacing instability that could not be tampered down, or could not be tamped down. David and Cameron experienced a great deal of apprehension, they said, but they never acted on it. The Bacardi gone, the party breaking up, Colin got quiet, and then blurted out his plan like all master criminals would. They would wait until most everybody was gone, and there was only one car left. It was cold and windy, occasionally raining, and eventually it was only Cody's Jeep remaining outside the bunker. So Colin commanded Cameron, the youngest, the 16-year-old, and probably the softest, to stay in the van and act as a lookout. He grabbed the shotgun, handed David the Mini 14 rifle, and then walked over to the Jeep. They banged on the windows, which uh, woke up Bodie and Cody, I guess they were asleep. Colin marched the sleepy couple, half-dressed and barefoot, into the bunker and ordered them to kneel. David says at this point, he put his gun down and began walking away. Colin called out for light. David held the flashlight behind him as he walked, providing an ebbing, uneven light, and in doing so, he was both separate, but crucial to what came next. And that was when the first of five shots rang out. According to Colin, it was a hell of an adrenaline rush. Uh, He didn't know that was being recorded in his jail cell, I think, by his attorney. Oops. It should be noted that prosecutors don't believe the autopsy reports jive exactly with David Smith's version of events And he may have fired at least one of the shots uh, With the tipster's secret recording Investigators had more to go on now and they zeroed in on Cameron and David To varying degrees the two cooperated with the police and their stories sometimes changed And they were overheard on the recordings discussing how to cover up the crime But they were malleable uh, Fuck fucking rats man fuck all these guys What's striking is how unflappable Colin was when the police came for him. He interrupted Detective Alexander as he was trying to read him his rights. I know what the Miranda laws are, he said. I'd like an attorney. I'd like one as soon as humanly possible. Jesus Christ, that's a strong start. Colin McLaughlin, David Smith, and Cameron Thomas were then each charged with murder, attempted robbery, and kidnapping. At the preliminary hearing, Cameron set apart from David and Colin. He stared straight ahead and never turned his head Though his face, pale and pained, twitched frequently. Last March, Cameron pleaded guilty to two counts of voluntary manslaughter. As part of a plea bargain that he'll testify against Colin and David. Colin's parents attended the preliminary hearing. They huddled together, his mother in a fleece jacket, his father in a windbreaker, and spoke to nobody. During breaks, they walked over to the waiting room windows and looked fascinated by the hedges. Oh man, at one point during the witness testimony, I saw Colin's mother go limp and pivot into her husband's body, pressing her face into his jacket because she was devastated. Only later, when Colin's father shifted his stance and I caught another angle, did I realize that no, she's not devastated, she's sleeping. (laughs) What the fuck? At first, I was drawn to the story because I'd heard that David and Colin's fathers were involved in law enforcement, and that contradiction interested me. There was also the fact of the good, happy kids intersecting with the lost boys in the dark, vast desert. Later, I came to see the story as less about the act of violence at its center and more about the inaction, the vacuum of responsibility that cushioned Colin as he grew more scary and definitely more violent. After the preliminary hearing, prosecutors announced that they were going to seek the death penalty against Colin and life in prison for David. David pleaded not guilty, and Colin pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Later, Colin's lawyers argued that he wasn't competent to stand trial. Um... Jesus Christ. So on October 3rd, a competency trial began. A pair of mental health experts that may have concluded that the West Covina man accused of execution style slangs of young high school desert couple at an abandoned military bungle is mentally competent to go to trial for the killings. But the decision about Colin and his present or his uh, current mental competency at the time wasn't up to experts. A jury began hearing witness testimonies the Wednesday of and the trial was held in Victorville Superior Court to determine whether or not dipshit, inbred, limp-wristed fuckboy is competent to go to trial for the 2008 deaths of Cody, Christopher Cody Thompson, and Bodie Potter of Hallandale. The jury decided, they were, they were set to decide whether or not McLaughlin is mentally competent, uh, not his state of mind, not whether or not he was competent during the time the crimes were committed, his his state of mind afterwards, during the trial. But before any witnesses testified, lawyers from both sides delivered their opening remarks, and McLaughlin is presumed competent, and it's up the defense to prove otherwise. Deputy Public Defender Rashid Alexander, one of the two defense lawyers, said that they were concerned in January about whether or not he could rationally help um, them with the trial preparation. Uh, That being McLaughlin. Colin. So... We can properly and fairly present his defense if he keeps his fucking mouth shut. McLaughlin suffers from paranoid schizophrenia, allegedly polysubstance dependency, and allegedly is bipolar, the defense said. The effects of those conditions have kept him from rationally communicating, cooperating, and coordinating with his defense lawyers. So he's not competent. McLaughlin faces two counts, each of murder, attempted robbery, and kidnapping. He also faces special circumstances, which made his case eligible for the death penalty as an 18-year-old for multiple murders though murders while lying in wait robbery and kidnapping and all sorts of just heinous pre-planning went into it prosecutors say that the possibility of a death sentence um has McLaughlin malingering or feigning the symptoms of mental illness he knows the court process because his dad is a fucking cop and because of the state hospitals uh that he's been reading about like Patton State Hospital as opposed to state prison is a much better choice Although whoever said that has never seen the inside of one of those places. They think they're fucking terrible. So he was either faking his mental illness or exaggerating about the symptoms. Uh, and that's that was a general consensus with the judge and district attorneys. Uh, to be mentally competent, as the law defines it, a defendant must be able to understand the nature and purpose of the criminal proceedings against him, uh, assist his attorneys in a rational manner in presenting the defense, and understand his own status and condition in, in the proceedings. Which... Clearly, he did. The defense also has the added job of proving to the jury that McLaughlin suffered from a mental disease or defect. Because it's all... I mean, yeah, sure, there's brain scans for some of it, but you can't prove it. If McLaughlin is found, or was found competent, the case would stay on track for a jury trial. And if found incompetent, he could be sent to a state psychiatric hospital. Or he would receive treatment until he's determined to be competent to stand trial. So he was <laughs> never going to not be in prison. Also charged in the killing is David Brian Smith, age 23 of Covina, who faced life in prison without the possibility of parole if he was convicted, which he was. So suck this dick. The victims were killed following a party at the bunker. Um, shot with a shotgun. There was also a Ruger around. Um. Hmm. They forced him under their knees, shot him execution style, as we've been over. Uh, Sinfield, one of the attorneys, read several excerpts in court from a recorded discussion McLaughlin had with his co-defendant, David Smith, while they were in custody and as well as recorded, from recorded phone calls to his mother. He was like, pretty much wired the whole time and had no idea, and he was just running his stupid-ass mouth. Here's a quote. How crazy do I have to act to get into Patton State Hospital? he asked in one of the recordings. The defendant explained that Patton is a minimum security facility where the food is better and the inmates are locked in but not locked down. So he would have to be a different person to go there. In other statements, the defendant says, I'm going to go with a psych defense. And after a while, I don't think they'll be able to tell where crazy begins, and sane ends. What? Three days after being evaluated by a mental health expert in April, McLaughlin reportedly told his mother that it was better than he expected. He also asked his mother for books to read, but then told her to hold off sending them because he didn't know if he'll be staying in jail or going to the hospital. So one of the mental health experts, Dr. Berg, initially concluded that McLaughlin was mentally competent, but reversed his conclusion after receiving copies of the recordings from the prosecutors. Mentally incompetent was the initial one, and then he read those statements. Parents and family members of Thompson and Potter were present in the court for the trial. Uh... Potter's mom said positive things have come out of her daughter's death, such as a walk planned for January and donations to Helendale Youth Center, which this woman turned into a revolutionary after it. Unfortunately, that was the motivator that pushed her there, but she did do very good things. Uh, Faith, she said, carried her through the court process, and she said she was really looking forward for the closure, to the closure because it's been going on for way too long. Just Because of the knowledge of the legal proceedings, this, they did get dicked around on this case for a long time i in 2008. They were convicted recently. God. All right. So the jury deliberated for a few hours before ruling him competent to stand trial after his how crazy do I have to get statement. Colin shared with the courtroom one final gesture before he was taken away and the message that implies a certain awareness that doesn't correspond with an insanity defense, but in its blunt fury seems true to who he was and is when he gave everyone in the courtroom the middle finger. Cute. Fuck you. Alright, so a West Covina man on December 2nd, 2013, pled guilty to six felony accounts of murder, kidnapping, and robbery in a 2008 execution-style slayings of a teenage couple in an abandoned military bunker. Fuck you. Under his plea agreement in San Bernardino County, Colin McLaughlin, age 24, will spend the rest of his life in prison without the possibility of parole, which takes the death penalty completely off the table, said Deputy Public Defender Wright- one of two attorneys from the San Bernardino County Public Defenders Capital Defense Unit assigned to the case. McLaughlin appeared in Victorville Superior Court for sentencing. Announcement of the plea agreement came the day the jury selection was to begin in McLaughlin's trial. Pre-trial motions were filed in November and the... It's been going on for a while, said so the defense attorney. McLaughlin was one of the three people charged in the January 5th slaying of Cody, Cody Thompson and Bodie Potter in the abandoned Air Force bunker. McLaughlin and David Smith allegedly forced them at gunpoint from their vehicle and marched them into the bunker in the early hours of the morning. Once inside, as we've been over, shot them uh, them in the backs and heads with a shotgun and a rifle. Smith, who has pled not guilty to the charges, still awaits trial. And his next appearance in court on March 21st for a pre-trial hearing? Okay, I don't really know what that means in this case, but... A third defendant, Cameron Thomas, who was 15 years old at the time of the killings, pled guilty in March 2011 to two accounts of voluntary manslaughter as part of a plea agreement to rat on everybody. He agreed to testify against the other two fuckers in exchange for leniency. For the families of the victims, McLaughlin's plea was some of the best news they've received in years. Six years had passed since the tragedy occurred. They celebrated. It was a huge day for them. She said she was with friends at her home, and a bigger celebration was planned for the weekend. So, though the district attorney's office aggressively pushed for capital punishment, Scherzer was against it, saying it was too costly, too time-consuming, and went against the interest of her and her children, including her late daughter, Bodie. Wow. The Woman is definitely driven by morals. Since the untimely death of the daughter, she has fought successfully to get the crumbling, long-abandoned desert bunker torn down by the stupid fucking Air Force hacks that built it in the first place, and she fought the legal system that said she wanted to provide Smith with a more lenient sentence in exchange for giving up McLaughlin. Wow, she's very cool. She had been attempting since 2008 to get county prosecutors to accept McLaughlin's guilty plea in exchange for life without parole. It wasn't clear Monday why the district attorney's office had a sudden change of heart. Prosecutor Steven Sinfield did not return telephone calls seeking comment, and district attorney spokesman Christopher Lee also declined to comment. At this time, we were unable to comment because the co-defendant code is still pending trial. Uh, defense attorneys also could not say when they were going to accept McLaughlin's plea. So, finally, the dramatic conclusion... This is the article that was published on January 18th, 2014, That's when he was convicted. A 24-year-old man, obsessed with killing people at random, will spend the rest of his life in jail over the abduction and execution-style murder of a teenage couple in an abandoned army bunker six years ago. This is written by the Daily Mail reporter. <sighs> facts, right? Colin Lee McLaughlin was yesterday handed a life sentence without the possibility of parole after making a plea deal in December to avoid being executed. In a case which horrified Californians, McLaughlin pled guilty to forcing high school sweethearts Christopher, Cody Thompson and Bodhisattva Bodhisattva's Bodhisattva, Potter, 16, into a desert bunker near Barstow before shooting them dead on January 5th, 2008. The families welcomed the sentence in Loyal Court, which was handed down after they delivered a very emotionally impactful statements. Colin McLaughlin, you took my son, but let me tell you, what you did not take are my memories of him, and you did not take the things that made him what he was to me. That was what Thompson's mom said. He had everything you never did, and he was everything you'll never be, and he will always be a better man than you even did. Nice. Bodie's mom said her daughter would have likely graduated from film school if she were still alive and would now be making movies. There's no more laughter down the hall, or constant phone calls or text messages, no more arguments of, "'Are you serious, Bodie? Are you really going to wear that?' There will be no high school or college graduations, no wedding dress, flowers, or what colors to choose. I will never see her children or hold my granddaughter, because the the day that she died, the world went gray for me. "'Yikes, man,' said. McLaughlin, however, did not act alone, as you know, the two fuckboys were involved. <sighs> okay. Oh, McLaughlin is the son of a retired Los Angeles Unified School District truancy officer. Ah. Uh. But it seems like in the end, everybody got some sort of justice. Um, one, of the, one of the family members during the court case said to McLaughlin, which I thought was pretty funny when I was watching the interview, it's... If you were so obsessed with death, you should have killed yourself. I love that, that open forum for shit talking. Um, But he kind of had the Ramirez approach to everybody during the trial. He just laughed and fucking giggled and smiled at him and shit. But fuck him. And enough... There's not enough praise in the world to give San Bernardino sheriffs the credit they deserve for this one. They have a huge, expansive territory, and they were able to track down people based on just bullshit. Oh, good job. You got the guys. The Air Force Base is blown up. All's well, I guess, with the end of this case. Obviously, it's not well that there are two teenagers fucking dead, but at least now we know what happened, and there's some closure. And I'm genuinely sorry for the families of the loved ones that were lost. And on that charming and wonderful note, I am out of time. This has been another... Very exciting episode of Anthology of Horror. Um, Stuff to do in the desert. Uh, Not murder people, of course, but exploring. Thank you all for tuning back in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, This one was kind of a hodgepodge mess, and I apologize for the uh, garbled nature that it was uh, presented in. Normally, it's, it's... just slightly more co- coherent, but not not by much. Uh, for all the return listeners, thank you very much for continuing to tune back in. I genuinely appreciate you. Uh, I received several emails and several comments about a website, an email address, and a Patreon account. Um, oh, first and foremost, if my advertisements that were phony for the last couple of episodes were just heinously offensive or got you in trouble at work, I'm sorry. I know some of them, the pointless profanity one was pretty bad, and... Uh, I think just mainly that one was the one that I got a lot of complaints about, but sorry about that if it caused issues. It did. I know it did, and I'm sorry. Just accept the apology. You don't have to say anything. Just hear me. Um, and then I also would like to apologize for some of my comments regarding the Black Dahlia. I received some mail that was uh, rather hateful, but they had valid points, and so I'm acknowledging the valid points of When I looked at the crime scene photos for the first time on the show, my first comment was, Wow, full bush. And that may have been a little out of line. I'm sorry. But, that's all for my uh, sensitivity. Thank you all for tuning back in. Oh, fuck, I forgot. (laughs) Totally forgot why I went on that tangent, but, okay. If you go to anthologyofhorror.com, now I have a website player and a website loaded up, ready to go, on which, as per request, you will find my Patreon link. I don't really know how to work the fucker, but that should be enough. It should work now. Speaking of Patreon, I don't want to just, you know, like, have a Patreon set up where it's just donations, like, a wish list or whatever the fuck people do. I don't want that. I want you guys to get something if you choose to donate. So if you guys have suggestions about what you'd like that to be, I'm all ears. I was thinking about doing... Uh, maybe censored and transcribed versions of the episode that you can listen to with your... your. I'm not I'm not going to say your kids, but with like your more sensitive friends or at work, so I'm not just screaming profanity and about horse semen and assholes. That's a thought. Um, I was going to say ad-free listening, but that this is uh, ad-free listening all the time, so you're shit out of luck with that one. But I'd love to hear from you guys, and you can also email me now. You don't have to hunt me down on Instagram at spring Jack at anthologyofhorror.com So, please, get in touch with me when you can. Love to hear from you. Because I genuinely appreciate all the support. And on the sidebar of support, let us see who the most supportive was from last week. Because I can check regionally where all my uh, my listeners are. And there are quite a few of you, and I'm grateful to each and every one of you. I know I've said that before, but I just want it to be overstated. I do appreciate you guys, and you guys are the reason that I keep doing this. Um, I've discovered how much I love hearing myself speak. More than I thought it ever would have been. Okay, so for Catholic sex guilt number two. The number one listener. Who's ready for it? Not I, because I don't have it loaded yet. I, the number one listener that influenced... 6% of the total listeners, Jesus Christ, was Mount Joy, Pennsylvania, and I've noticed a continuous ups, uptrend from that area. So thank you very much, Mount Trent. I'm sorry, Mount Joy, Mount Joy, Pennsylvania. Followed by of course Los Angeles, followed by Portland, followed by Littleton, Colorado, Altadena, California, Springville, Springville, Utah, London, Kentucky, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Murooka, Queensland, and Denver, Colorado. Thank you all very much for the support. I appreciate you guys, and this has you guys have made this a really fun experience for me. So thank you for keeping that ball rolling. And once again, you can, I think, download straight off the site or listen to them directly off the site. If you have a hard time loading my podcast episodes on other places, please go to anthologyofhorror.com and uh, just give it, a, give it a listen. You can constructively critique my website, too. I won't be offended. It would be actually very helpful. I look forward to each and every one of you reaching out to me. I look forward to talking to each and every one of you at some point. And I appreciate you guys. So until that point comes, stay spooky.